Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. I'm here with Amanda Radke, who's a South Dakota cattle rancher and a blogger with Beef Magazine. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, you bet. So um, let's talk a little bit about alternative proteins. You've been... um, looking into that some lately and done some research on it, right? Yeah. I, I think one of the biggest things that I wanted to emphasize in my message today um, was that I'm not anti-technology and anything that we can come up with as far as food science goes to feed a hungry planet is is wonderful. And so I didn't want to pit traditional beef production against anything else, and, and I'm not against consumer choice. However, some of these um, petri dish protein companies are really touting themselves as environmentally um, and ethically superior um, to traditionally raised beef. And so I wanted to highlight why the beef cow is incredible um, in providing a safe and nourishing beef product for us to consume and also life-enriching byproducts. And that simply can't be replicated in a Petri dish. So let's kind of compare beef to some of the different alternative protein options out there. And I know there are a bunch of them. So maybe the first thing would be to say, what are all the different alternatives? Sure. Well, we're seeing uh, plant-based protein patties like Beyond and Impossible hitting the marketplace and receiving a lot of traction and attention, uh, retailers carrying those options, and not just marketing them to your vegetarian and vegan crowd, but marketing them to meat lovers as a direct replacement to traditional, you know, cheeseburger. Uh, we're, we also may see plant or petri dish proteins enter the marketplace as soon as the end of the year. And so a lot of what we know about these products products is conjecture right now because these companies aren't really forthcoming with any information on their manufacturing processes. Um, however, what I do know is that the modern beef producer of today has a lot of great advantages uh, as far as efficiently producing beef and doing it um, in a way that uh, is not just sustainable to our natural resources, but is regenerative too. And so that's really what I wanted to celebrate today in my message. Okay. Go into a little more specifics on how is beef production regenerative? What do you mean when you say that? Uh, When I say regenerative, I want to look specifically at rangelands and grasslands. And so a lot of times consumers will say, well, we could just plow up that land and use it to grow crops or, you know, cereal grains or whatever to feed people. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that most of this land is unsuitable for um, modernizing or farming and can only be used by ruminant animals. And if it were not, it would become a desert or a barren wasteland. And so cattle, with each bite of grass they take, with each step of their hooves, they aerate the soil, they reduce fuel for wildfires, they provide habitat for everything from bees to rabbits and mice and deer and foxes. And um, and so it's they are a critical component to our ecosystem and it's, they're just part of the balance. And not only that, but they can upcycle um, this poor, marginal, inedible, cellulosic material that is grass and they can convert it into a nutrient-packed superfood like beef. And it's not just grass, right? What other kinds of cellulose materials do they 
Sure. Well, it depends on the part of the country. I mean, they can eat everything from potato byproducts in Idaho to distiller's grains in the Corn Belt. And so they can take um, byproducts of other crop production and other foods and can convert that into beef as well. Um, So I I think, um, you know, a lot of times we our consumers misplace the information or misplace the blame on, you know, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions because they've been told if they skip eating meat one day out of the week, um, they'll save the planet. But ultimately, I I guess I really want to stress that Mother Nature wasn't wrong and the beef cow is incredible and so we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and and that she can play a critical part in A, taking care of our natural resources and B, feeding a hungry planet. That's good to know. So you've got some kind of problems that you've mm-hmm. uh, that you've outlined where alternative proteins don't stack up to beef. Do you want to talk through some of those with us? Uh, sure. You know, the first problem, or and maybe it's just the advantage of the beef cow, but uh, these companies haven't really proven their environmental impact. And so when they talk about the natural resources used in beef production, they also fail to acknowledge the energy use, uh, the crops that are needed, um, the fact that there's still animal fetal cells that will be used in this production practice, uh, the waste um, produced as as far as um, what's being grown in the laboratory. Uh, this all has an environmental footprint as well. And so I think there's some burden of proof there for them to show us what their environmental footprint actually is and can it compete is if it goes to scale. Um, the next problem, as we discussed, is, you know, that this, this lab meat can't regenerate and build topsoil quite like cattle can. And so anytime we plow up rangeland and pastures um, to be used for monoculture and crop production, we are losing that um, carbon capture of having that soil covered by grass. And so just by having that grasslands maintained and not going into barren wasteland or trying to grow cereal grains or an alternative on this marginal land um, is something these petri dish proteins can't do. Uh, the next, and it's it's one I, I love talking about, is byproducts. And so when we think of beef cattle, we think of steaks and cheeseburgers, but it's so much more than that. It's it's things like insulin for diabetics, uh, crayons, deodorants, leather goods like boots and, and belts and uh, furniture, um, and everything in between. There's hundreds of byproducts that enrich our everyday lives that come from beef cattle, even organic fertilizer for vegetable production. uh, Well, that comes from cows too. And so byproducts are a huge thing. And if we're going to try to replace the all-in-one machine that is a beef cow um, with synthetic or alternative options for all these byproducts, that's going to have an environmental footprint as well. Um, And then another problem, a lot of these companies are promising that they're antibiotic-free and pathogen-free. And I think it's unfair for any food company to claim that there aren't vulnerabilities as far as food safety goes. Um, And and we need more transparency as far as what are their antibiotic usage? um, Where are they vulnerable? Where are points of contamination? And I'm thankful that the FDA and USDA are going to jointly regulate and oversee these production practices, um, but yet I think there's a lot more they need to prove before um, they enter the marketplace. Um, and then finally, you know, someone told me how that you know, don't you feel bad eating cattle? Your diet 
leads to death. And I think it's important to note that once again, every diet, no matter if it's a total vegan or a total carnivore, there's death, animal deaths involved. And so every time a field is plowed, you're misplacing the, the wildlife that live there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just a give and take. And as a rancher, I understand the circle of life and, and I value that beef cattle for what she offers to people to nourish and enrich people's lives. Um, however, I think it's, it's just a convenient thing that, uh, the plant-based folks kind of ignore that their diets also have death and suffering as well. And so it's just a matter of, um, where you place your importance, I guess. And, and for me, I can feel pretty confident that I'm utilizing a beef animal and respecting, um, what she has to offer humanity, um, while also respectfully caring for that, that animal too, while she is, um, in our care. Yeah. Good point. So I'm sure most people haven't even thought of that fact that crops do displace natural habitat, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, pasture does to an extent too. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly it's a problem when deforestation occurs for pasture, but if you're on natural grasslands, it's not not quite as big of an issue. Talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned antibiotics, and I, I would think that most people would assume that cell-based or petri dish-based meat wouldn't need any antibiotics because these are not living animals that are, that are walking around and have potential to get sick. So where would the antibiotics come into that process? Sure. Um, well, without actually having seen the manufacturing process take place, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns there and I can't speak with authority on how the antibiotics would be used. However, just like any living thing, um, especially when it's interacting with humans in a lab, there are those points of vulnerability where antibiotics might be um, applied and used um, in that setting. And so I appreciate the National Cattlemen's Beef Association uh, coming out and saying strongly that we need more information and clarity on antibiotic usage in these petri dish proteins um, production practices, um, and that that needs to be regulated and overseen by the USDA. So you're talking about kind of some sort of instance where there's contamination in the in the lab or in the production process. Perhaps. And, and I mean, it could come at the collection phase too. I mean, we're dealing with live animals at that stage as well, as far as like the fetal cells. And so, um, yeah, I, I think maybe it's, like I said, we're in its, in its infancy right now where we don't totally know and understand the processes. And so, um, you know, I hate, I really hate fear mongering about any um, products that I don't know or understand. And I'm always very mindful of, you know, no matter what the beef is, whether it's natural grass-fed, organic, or Petri dish, it's an option for the consumers and we're getting protein on people's plate. And, and these products could be viable in the marketplace and a solution uh, to giving people around the world that, that product. However, um, where I, I have problems is in this rush to market um, and in this rush to get a return on investment with these major um, investors that are um, actively, you know, participating in these production practices, I worry that food safety, um, transparency, nutritional information um, might not be as clear as it should be for our consumers. So we need to be cautious there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk a little bit about like the natural resources, the inputs that go into cell-based proteins. Sure. And again, this is conjecture really uh, from what I've read and can understand, but I, uh, 
you're going to need, obviously, a fetal calf and cells um, from that calf. Uh, they'll grow in a suitable medium. And from what I understand, it could be soybeans or corn, mushrooms, and could even be uh, cattle-based, just depending on you know the, the company. Uh, that growth medium will grow the muscle strain fibers and also the fat fibers. They're grown separately and have to come together. Um, by my understanding, they're kept at 98 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and these cells, as they duplicate and grow, they produce waste. And so then waste has to be taken out of that Petri dish as well. And so it's a huge process. Uh, there might be some opportunities for crop producers, um, corn and soybean growers, to provide this medium for these um, cells to grow. Um, and so I think, you know, you I don't want to be short-sighted and think that these products don't have a place in agriculture. However, um, it's difficult for me as a beef producer to see them disparage our industry while also trying to uh, hijack our nomenclature like beef and the great reputation that beef has with our beef loving consumers and use it to market their product. Yeah. So if, if you're going to have to uh, grow the cells in a medium that's made out of something because mm -hmm. it's, it's not magic, right? right? They, they have to provide nutrients to the cells. Uh, if those are supplied with soybeans or corn or, or any kind of plant, mm -hmm. then it's not necessarily going to have a smaller footprint than a cow. Exactly. Yes. It, it, it might or might not, but it's not going to be um, drastically, it's not going to be free of inputs, right? Uh, correct. And, and, and so they, and they also will have to maintain this environment at this temperature and keep it in a sterile setting, that's going to take a lot of energy. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I think they're downplaying that side of their story while really focusing on any negatives they might perceive about traditionally raised beef. And so I want to compare apples to apples or apples to oranges, however you might look at it. And, you know, as they go to scale um, in the marketplace, they'll have to prove that burden um, and that environmental footprint. And, and, and then we'll see. But I really think the, the beef cow can compete and has a, a great story to tell and is an important part of our environmental stewardship and our sustainability story as far as a planet and a human race. So you mentioned there's a little bit of controversy over the use of the words meat and beef. Um, some, some of these products, when they come to market, they may want to call them burgers or meat or beef or meatless, whatever. So where does that stand? Is it a regulatory issue? Is it controversial? There's several states across the country and uh, that are fighting to protect the nomenclature of meat and beef. And I got to give props to Kentucky. The governor just signed a proclamation declaring it Beef Month for May, but also uh, a labeling law that would prohibit fake meats from calling themselves meat or beef. And so I think that's a great first step in setting those precedents on a state level before it can be, you know, federally enforced. Uh, we're also seeing countries around the world like Australia, France, the European Union, uh, they're all addressing these meat labeling rules and, and what 
is best um, and most informative for consumers. And so to me, it's really misleading to have these alternative products be called meat and beef. Um, and most importantly, uh, beef producers have invested through the beef checkoff program a dollar per animal sold to promote beef. And so you have everything from the iconic beef, it's what's for dinner slogan uh, to research to uh create new steaks that would add value to the carcass, to educating our consumers about how best to prepare beef. Um, and that investment has earned us a great reputation with our consumers. Uh, beef is beloved and it's king of the grill. And now these companies want to take that nomenclature and use it for themselves. And so that's really frustrating. And I think that's why the beef industry in general is really active in this fight because beef is beef, period. And it shouldn't be slapped on any other product. Let's compare sales of alternative or or plant-based proteins to beef. Where where does that stand right now? Uh, U.S. sales of plant-based meats jumped 42% between March 2016 and March 2019 to a total of $888 million. Uh, Meanwhile, traditional meat sales rose just 1% to $85 billion in that same time frame, and that's according to ABC News. Uh, Beyond Burger or Beyond Meat uh, is valued at $5.1 billion as of today. And so I just read a guy that's predicting that's beyond stupid, and he predicts (laughs) that that rising star is going to fizzle out pretty fast. Um, But I think it's a clear indication that retailers and consumers are incredibly excited about at least the plant-based protein patties and are willing to try it. I just read a study that one-third of consumers are also willing to try uh, lab proteins. And so it'll be interesting to see what consumer acceptance looks like uh, once they get to try it, if they like it. And again, um, you know, if beef can hang on to the center of the dinner plate. So it's early days still, kind of, and we'll see what happens, right? Yeah, and I I think the plant-based proteins, if you look at their ingredient list, it's a mile long, and it's essentially just a processed food. It's It's not a whole nourishing food like beef is, a complete protein like beef would be. And so uh, for me, it's it's a little interesting to see what types of consumers are loving this product. Are they the types that are really interested about health and nutrition? Are they buying it out of guilt or fear about the environment or about animal welfare? And if so, how do we address some of their concerns that they might have about traditional beef and get them back to eating um, beef as a protein choice in between those those hamburger buns? All right. Well, thank you, Amanda. That was a great conversation. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was thrilled to be able to share that Alltech stage with such talented speakers, and it's just a great event to be a part of. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash agfuture. future.